Our word this morning comes from Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even short verses that are just filled to the brim with your truth. Lord, we thank you for your servant, Mike, and his gift of teaching, uh, for his uh, joyous presence in our midst. And Lord, we pray this morning as he brings your word that you would, you would silence his anxieties, that you would quiet his voice and magnify your voice through him. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Brennan. Good morning. Good morning. Um, like always, it is good to be here. So last time I was here, uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was up here, I mentioned being new to Atlanta um, and my inexperience um, with differentiating between weeds and grass. Um, well, if you grew up in a small town like me or outside of Atlanta, there's another thing being new to Atlanta changes your identity and thought of, and that's called traffic. Um, it's a true story. Before we moved to Atlanta, my wife and I lived in a small beach town in Florida called Vero Beach. Um, sleepy beach town, I mean, very laid-back lifestyle. And I had um, a Jesus fish on the back of my tailgate of my truck. Wonderful thing. Like, you know, I, I mean, Columbia shirts every day, flip-flops, Vero Breach is wonderful. Within a week of moving to Atlanta, that thing came off my truck quick because I didn't want to lose my testimony. Like, I no longer have a Jesus fish on my truck. Um, and, and it's just a part of it. Like, even last week, um, I was driving south on 85, and I mean, it was flow of traffic. So this wasn't like 10 o'clock, 9 o'clock traffic. And the, right on 85, somebody all of a sudden in front of me slams on their brakes. People are still going 70 miles per hour, and this person proceeds to hit reverse because they missed their exit about 50 yards. And the whole time, they're yelling at me like I did something wrong. Like, or uh, how many times y'all been in the Peach Pass lane? And it's standstill traffic over here. Then you know somebody's going to swerve in and potentially hit you, or why is it seems like either people drive 45 or 120? Um, can I get an amen? Um, but it doesn't stop there. Like, it doesn't even stop with that. Like, what about parking? I mean, how often, like, I, I, without fail, every time that I try to, to park, pretty much every time that I try to park, um, I, I think I find a spot, then all of a sudden there's some large SUV that's just enough on the line where you can't park next to it. I drive a truck, I can't say too much, it's probably me, but all of these things, uh, when I think about them, my response to traffic or any number of small and insignificant things comes directly from my natural impulse to want to take offense. And I think the idea of taking offense is something that we can all feel, right? Especially now. I recently saw a meme that said, good morning, America. What are we offended about today? Um, and the reason we, we kind of laugh at that, because it is a caricature of what our culture and where we are as a society is. It is the American 
psyche right now. And it seems that every time we turn around, someone is offended. And in a culture where political correctness is king, this can be absolutely exhausting. And sadly, though, we as Christians are no exception to this. Um, We are quick to use the word offended. And while we should be the least offendable people walking this earth, we tend to be some of the most easily offended. But here's my question. How do we change that narrative? How how do we be more like Christ uh, in the midst of where we are as a society and where we are today? And please hear me. This is not me soapboxing. This is not a stump speech whatsoever. This is a look at what does Scripture say about living a life that is unoffended. In order to do that, I think we need to look at three things. First of all, the root, like the reasons our flesh takes offense. The response, what Scripture reveals about realigning our focus. And finally, the relief. What are we, do to, what are we to do about it? What's, what's the change? What are we to do? So the root the response, and the relief. And the big idea is this. Being crucified with Christ frees us to live an unoffendable life. And as we get started, let me just, let me just pray for us. Father, um, <laughs> I, I know what's coming because you and I have been working on this and for the last couple weeks. And Lord, um, and I pray that, that we do not gloss over the reality of, of who we are um, disconnected from you, Father. So I pray to just make that clear, even as my words may not be, Father. So I pray to just be with us this morning. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the root. So what does it mean to be offended in this day and age? And I think, um, here's, my, here's my working definition for that, okay? So to feel hurt, angry, or upset by something that is said or done that contradicts, challenges, or confronts what one believes or feels to be right or true. Let me say that again. To feel hurt, angry, or upset by something that is said or done that contradicts, challenges, or confronts what one believes or feels to be right or true. So everything another person says that we disagree with is an opportunity to be offended. Anything another person does that is different than how we would do it strengthens the hardness of our hearts. And so too often... We can't just disagree with people, right? We are personally offended by the words, opinions, and actions of others, even when they have absolutely no bearing on our personal lives. And let's be honest, none of this is new to us. None of, none of this is new. There's no revelation here in what I'm saying. The Bible clearly tells us, I think it's in Matthew 24, that, we, that the offense will come. It's not a question of if, but when. But most of the problem with offense lies with the person who is offended and not the person who's doing, that is offending. It's, it lies within us. And we're really good at noticing it in others, but a lot less likely to identify it in ourselves. Because we see in Scripture over and over many instances of Jesus causing offense He offends his hometown. He offends the Pharisees and the scribes. He is, as it says in Isaiah, the stone of stumbling and the rock of the offense. 
and this is no big surprise to us as Christians, right? We aren't shocked that the Pharisees or the hometown crowd are resentful and outraged by Jesus' superior understanding and his mighty deeds. From our vantage point, it isn't too hard to see that when Jesus challenges their view of reality, he is always right. Like, there's no question about that, right? We can see their blind spots and see the things that make them easily offended. The problem is, so often when we read these passages and we're like, yeah, Jesus, you go get them. You go show those Pharisees their sin. You, yeah, just, they desert everything that have come into them. The problem is, we forget, we ain't Jesus. Like, we're the Pharisees in this story. So often when we think about these stories, we, we put ourselves in the place of the hero, but that's not the case. Jesus is talking to us. Like, we're not the hero, we're the villain in this story. And Jesus is always right. And since we're not the best at identifying the reasons we take offense, um, here's a few that we find throughout Scripture. And so what I want to do is just kind of look at different Proverbs individually talking about, like, what are the different offenses that we, we take? Uh, and so what I did, like, so often when I get the opportunity to speak, um, I, I ask a lot of questions to friends and just say, hey, what are some different ways that you feel as though that we as, as people, not even believers, but we as people are quick to take offense um, and this is what we came up with. And the first one, misplaced dependence. So simply put, misplaced dependence is when we expect someone or something to act as the ultimate thing in our life. Um, and so, like, for example, with this one, this plays out in multiple ways. Like, first of all, for my, my parents in the room, or actually, if you're, you've done this on both sides as a parent or as, um, as a child, uh, this happens so often. And if you heard me preach, I've talked about this all the time. Um, so Christmas is coming up or a birthday is coming up. And how often do we hear as parents, Mom, Dad, if you get me just this one thing, I will never ask for anything other again, Right? Like, what inevitably happens? A week later, the newest iPhone or the newest whatever, the new iteration comes out, and, and now we want that. It's like, if I just had this one thing, everything would be okay. And it doesn't just play into, like, objects, but I think even more so, it plays into relationships. If I just had this relationship, everything would be okay. If I just had this then all my needs would be taken care of. And when those things don't happen, we become offended. If I am depending on you, or if you are depending on me or someone else to make a life worth living and enjoyable, neither of us has any hope. We can't be Christ to anyone, and no one can be Christ to us but Christ himself. Anytime we look to others as our savior, anytime we expect them to be our everything, we turn that relationship into an idol. This can be true of friendships, dating relationships, relationships to our kids, and even in our marriages. And there have been so many times in my marriage that I put undue pressure on my wife to fulfill a role that only Christ can. And when she doesn't live up to an unachievable expectation or role, I think that she should, a role none of us could possibly bear, I become offended. Yes, relationships can compliment us, 
but they will never complete us. That's the job of Christ. So if not, if not misplaced dependence, let's move on to probably the, the biggest one that I can, I can think of, pride. <laughs> How often is pride at the heart of our offense? And this is, you can find this, Proverbs 18, 19 says this. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. And quarreling is like the bars of a castle. Strong cities are seldom taken, and castle bars are the strongest of the sort. So what Solomon is saying here is that if a prideful brother or sister is offended, reconciliation is nearly hopeless. Because pride makes us unassailable, recalcitrant, and too hard-hearted to hear an appeal. Because how dare they say that to me? Um, so I, I, don't, I don't get to do this often. So, I, I mean, my role, um, I work for a nonprofit. And my role allows me to, uh, every once in a while, to get behind the pulpit and, and preach. And I love it. I absolutely love to do this. I probably get to do it six or seven times a year. I know Patrick has joked about being, the, as the youth pastor, being like the guy that does holidays. Well, because our organization works with a lot of churches, I, I've said it before, I'm pretty sure there's about three or four churches that they come, that people just come at Christmas think I'm the pastor, because it always inevitably happens. And I remember one time, just recently, and I won't name the church, uh, because I wouldn't name the church, um, but I remember how much my pride got into the way. So after I preached, I was leaving, and it's, you know, it's, it's exhausting. Like, there's, there's the, the lead-up to it, for if you do this, the lead-up to it, the preparation, it takes a lot of time. Like, I, for me, it takes a lot of time. And so I remember I'm, I'm leaving the, the sermon, and as soon as I'm done, the first thing that I hear was, man, I can't wait till the pastor gets back. Like, <laughs> like but at the same, like, the, my pride in me, like, it says, like, wait, like, do you know who I am? But as I say, and the, the sad thing is, I've never been back to that church. Is that because of me? It's because of some level of pride to think, like, forget, who, is it about me or something else, too? And so it's over and over again, pride is at the root of what we do, right? Pride is at the root of it. When our pride is offended, we believe ourselves to have the moral high ground so we feel justified in making the one who has offended us a villain. How about a lack of control? So this is Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So the person who is undisciplined, reactionary, or lacks restraint has no defense against anger lust, impatient, or unchecked emotions. So without self-control, we are wide open to sin, and we let others control our spirit. <laughs> Next one, picking up someone else's offense. Proverbs twenty six seventeen. Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. So in other words, sooner or later, you will get bit because even a friendly dog will attack you if you tug and pull at its ears. And I think picking up someone else's offense is most visible online. 
Uh, so I was, as I was just trying to figure this out, I, I saw a, an article from a New York Times opinion writer, and he describes it as outrage addiction. And he summarized it by saying this. So many letters to the editor and comments on the internet have this tone of thrilled vindication. These are people who have vigilantly, have been vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by, and they found it. Obviously, some part of us loves feeling one right and two wronged, but this outrage is a lot like other things that feel good, but over time devour us from the inside out, except it's even more insidious than that. The most vice is because we don't even consciously acknowledge that it's a pleasure. We prefer to think of it as a disagreeable but fundamentally healthy reaction to negative stimuli like pain or nausea, rather than admit that it's a shameful kick we eagerly indulge again and again. It's outrage addiction, selected specifically to pander to our impulse to judge and to punish, to satiate our righteous indignation. Was anybody else on Facebook during the Christmas of Starbucks Red Cup? That was fun. I mean, over and over again, we, we see this, and this is not me stump speech, and this is not soapboxing, but we see the reality of this is what it is. We, when we pick up and take offenses of others, then we take it to the extreme, and this is what happens. Or how about this? Lastly, lack of information. So Proverbs 18, 13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is, it is his folly and shame. We are offended by how things appear and not by how things are. We make assumptions before knowing facts, asking the right questions, or giving the benefit of the doubt. See, our tendency is to assume the worst, and what this verse is saying is that a hasty response is not wise or prudent. It's foolish and shameful. And how many times have we come to conclusions of someone or something based on someone else's warped perception of them or based on what I just assume. And this is on all levels. I mean, I, <laughs> um, I'm sorry for any people that, that root for this team in here. Um, I, I grew up a Florida State Seminole fan. I'm from Florida, and thankfully, as Georgia fan, a lot of y'all Georgia fans, you don't care either. But we have a, we have a, a mutual disdain for a certain team uh, that plays in the SEC that's orange and blue, that's a lizard. And I know there's one in here. It's a gator, also known as. <laughs> and sadly, even for something as small as the, like being a fan of Florida State Seminoles, and I look at the Florida Gators, like, how can that be anybody good come out of from Gainesville? Then I got guys like Phil White, who's incredible. Like, you know, oh, amen and amen. <laughs> but it's just one of those things that we take even small things and these, these things of just lack of information, just to make the assumption of things and that becomes the ultimate thing. But that's not true. And these are the reasons that we take offense. And so if, if this is why our flesh takes offense, I think there are two major ways how our flesh responds to offense. Either we do nothing and let it rot inside of us, or we get even. So when we do nothing and let it rot inside of us, we end up rehearsing those details over and over and over again. And each time adding a little bit more indignation to our negative thinking. It's not long until we have what Hebrews 12 calls the root of bitterness. And that root just doesn't destroy you. It takes out those in proximity of you too. 
So letting an offense fester unchallenged will destroy your relationship with the one who offended you. You will interpret every action, every word with suspicion. Every detail will be scrutinized in a negative light as your case against them grows with every contact. You can't look them in the eye. You cannot kneel with them in prayer. The enemy has won the victory. And if our response isn't do nothing and let, let it rot, getting even comes in a close second, right? Speaking of driving into Atlanta, driving in Atlanta, uh, maybe I'm just the minority here. I don't think so. But what is our first response um, when someone comes just driving? If we're going, it doesn't matter if we're on 360, wherever we are, somebody, and it's probably all this, the same car, there's a certain type of car that seems to do this more. That's in my mind. Um, like, will just come blazing by you, like you're just speeding, and they barely miss your bumper as they swerve off. What's our first response to them? I hope they get a ticket. Like, I'd say it every time. I hope they get a ticket. And this is us getting even. Like, we want to get even. You did this, so you deserve that. Because let's be honest, isn't that biblical? What does Exodus 21 say? Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. Foot for a foot. The problem is we overlook Romans 12 when it says, repay no evil for evil. So if this is the root of it, the reasons that our flesh takes offense, what is the response? What should a follower of Jesus do in response to everything from normal life in a fallen world brokenness to encounters with irritating people to intentional insults and mean-spirited slights? What should we do? What do we do when we're offended by one another? What do we do if the offense given or taken is a result of carelessness or thin skin or personality differences, or unintentionally missing the mark, or sinfulness in ourselves or others. The good news is that the gospel doesn't make us less human, it makes us more human. As followers of Christ, we experience the full range of disappointment and emotions common to all image bearers of God. And by God's grace, there is a path forward where we can steward these disappointments and emotions Rather than be enslaved by them, we can learn to respond as redemptively as possible as opposed to reacting selfishly and self-righteously. And we can actually find joy, as it says in Proverbs 19.11, when we overlook an offense. So how do we do it? Let's look at the response. And as, I'm, as I begin to get into the response, I want to make something very clear. How we respond um, to offense must not be confused with submitting to abusive power or morally and ethically wrong circumstances. Jesus calls us to be foot washers, not doormats, okay? I want to make that very clear as we're talking about this. We are not called to be doormats. We're called to be foot washers. However, there is a path forward to living an unoffendable life, and it starts with coming to terms with the offensiveness of the gospel, that's how we start. That's, that's the answer. But we, we, we see that the gospel is absolutely offensive. The gospel says you cannot do it. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. And you are unworthy of God's grace. That's what the gospel says. You are a glorious creature gone tragically bad. 
that has rebelled against the God who made you and he did the most difficult thing imaginable to win you back and lavish you with eternal goodness. It is wondrously good news, but unavoidable in the offense. Do you see it? You've gone tragically bad. You're a reckless rebel against the most powerful person in the universe. There's nothing you can do to save yourself, earn God's favor, or get yourself out of that cosmic pit that you're in. And you're the one that dug the pit and you still can't get out. The offense is that the magnitude of God's solution, the slaughter of his own son, shows the magnitude of our wickedness and frailty and utter inability to do anything about it. Yes, the gospel says you're more loved than you could ever have dreamed, but as Tim Keller also says, at the same time it says you're more sinful than you can ever imagine. And that's repulsive to our palate. Listen, if you've never seen the cross as offensive, you've missed something essential. The cross declares how dire our condition is apart from Jesus. It announces how deep the sin goes, how profound the rebellion is. How impossible is our condition apart from the help on the outside? There's nothing we can do, no effort we can exert, no law that we can follow. The message of Christ crucified says you're an absolute failure in relation to what's most important. You cannot do it. The horror of killing the Son of God points to the horror of our condition. The cross embodies some of the most offensive things possible you could say about someone in relation to God in eternity. This gruesome death that Jesus died, you earned it. I earned it. The hell that Jesus endured, you deserved it. I deserved it. Forever. The shame he underwent, the scorn, the disrespect, the hurt, all these are suitable to us as sinners as they are unsuitable to him, the perfect one. And it's not that it just turned out this way, but God planned it, okay? He designed the offense. Isaiah called it when he said he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus himself in John 6 says, challenges disciples with the offense. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You cannot do it. You're not good enough or smart enough, and perhaps most offensive of all, you are lifeless. John 6, 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. The gospel is as offensive as it gets, and we overlook that, and I don't think we fully grasp that because we're not the villain, right? We're the hero. This is not talking, this is always somebody else, but not us, but this is talking directly to us. But how is this a path forward? Like, how is the, the offensiveness of the gospel a path, a path forward for us? How does grasping the gospel as offensive lead us to a life free from being offended? Because it points us to the one who says this. You've heard, it said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Jesus did not merely speak these words as an edict from on high. He became these words. God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And listen, and this is, this is the part that can become a little bit disconcerting. And when we have been crucified with Christ, as it says in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that means when the offense comes and we have been crucified with Christ, the offenses are no longer directed at us, but at the one who lived an unoffendable life. And as disorienting as it sounds, being crucified with Christ means the unoffendable life is now our life. Colossians 3, 3 through 4, for you have died and you are hidden, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Not next to his glory, not looking upon his glory, but with him in glory. The disorienting nature of the Christian life is learning to live out of the source and supply of the new creation life we have received in Christ. And to the degree that we know that we have died, our old Adam life, our sinful, helpless, hopeless life is gone, no pulse life is out of here, that same degree empowers us to live the crucified to Christ life. That is why Paul says whoever is in Christ is a new creation. It's why Jesus would tell Nicodemus, brother, you need a new life, a born-again life, to see the kingdom. Until we can truly see and know that I really have been crucified with Christ, I will still see every offense against, just against me. But to the degree that I know that I have been, past tense, crucified with Christ, I will come to see that every offense is against the life of Christ in me. The one who lives for both intercession and to cry out from the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Christ is both willing and able to now utter those words in us and through us as we entrust ourselves to his life, offering the other cheek, Get going the second mile, for we have received a cheek-turning second-mile life. And I want to make something very clear as I, as I begin to wrap this up. Being crucified with Christ does not mere, mean we are not to offend people. A follower of Jesus, like we just talked about, the, the gospel is offensive, okay? So this is the, the reaction is just say, well, we're not going to be offendable anymore. Like, we're not going to offend people. That's not the response. That is not what we're called to as believers, a follower of Jesus is by definition a person who carries certain convictions. Yet when we must disagree, being steadfast in our loyalty to Jesus demands that we, must, we are not disagreeable as people. So when people assume a different viewpoint than ours, we are never to hold them in contempt. Scorn and disdain and a chip on the shoulder are not Christian principles. Those are pharisaical vices. They, there may be at times um, help win an argument, but they will never win people. A disagreeable spirit is not the way that Jesus intends for his followers to engage in disagreements and debates. Tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. 
It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. This is where biblical Christianity is unparalleled in its beauty and distinctiveness. And I'm not talking about distorted belief systems of what Christianity is perceived to be. I'm talking about the true, pure, undefiled, unedited, unfiltered, unrevised, and altogether biblical and beautiful system of belief. The ones that visits orphans and widows. The one that loves all of its neighbors who are near or in need. The one that is kind to its enemies. And having received such grace, Christians have a compelling reason to be the most remarkably gracious, inviting, and endearing in our treatment of others, including and especially those who disagree with us. Christians should be the most unoffendable people walking this planet. Let's be known for what we are, are for instead of what we are for against, what we are against. Let's be less zealous about defending our own rights for Jesus laid down his rights and more zealous about joining Jesus in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. And lastly and briefly, what is the relief? So what are we to do about it? And, you know, Friday morning as I was finishing this message up, um, I, was, I was trying to figure out, what are, like, what are the seven steps to be less offendable? And the more that I thought about it, I realized that if I had a list that would just water down what the one thing is that we're called to do. And, the, uh, and so this is what it is. Like so many things, it's extremely simple, yet extremely difficult. But here it is. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Believe we have been joined to this unoffendable life. In Romans 6.11, the very first imperative of this entire book essentially commands us to believe the gospel, to believe we really have died with Christ, been buried with Christ, and been raised to new life in Christ. That's it. There's nothing else. Believe the gospel. There's no exhaustive list. There is, there's no seven steps to achieving spiritual maturity, okay? Spiritual maturity isn't about behaving better. Spiritual maturity is about believing better. And the deeper, more profound our belief in the gospel is and its power and its purpose leads to a behavior that is in line with our identity as saints. So here's the, here it is. If you want to live an unoffendable life, embrace the offensiveness of the gospel and believe it. Let's pray. Father, like so many things... Um, that we are called to in Scripture, the most simple often are the most difficult. Because in the moments of, of, of anger and frustration, um, I know how often that I forget the gospel. So Lord, even as Brandon was talking about earlier, um, when offenses come, First and foremost, remind me of my offense, Lord. Remind me of how desperately broken and wicked I am, disconnected from Jesus, Lord. Remind us of the cross, Lord, so that we may be image bearers. May be image bearers of the Son of God 
and not be image bearers of the, of the enemy, Father. Thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for loving us even in the midst of our brokenness, Lord, and help us to believe the gospel more today. We promise in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.